step one You say we need to talk He walks You say sit down It's just a talk He smiles politely back at you How are you, um, how are you feeling about the future? And it's a strange experience um, after Easter. I went on holiday and um, we drove down uh, through France to the Alps and we uh, went to Chamonix, which is my favourite place in the whole world. And uh, we went skiing and mountaineering and um, it was fantastic. But it was a strange experience as we were driving down with um, the sun shining and uh, the windows down and the wind in our hair. And I'm afraid to say we were driving a bit too fast. And. Um, there was something in that which felt really decadent and really quite, um, I want to use the word, fin de siècle, is that close enough? See what I can do? Something quite end of an era about it. Something um, in that just kind of, you know, wastefully burning petrol that maybe we wouldn't be able to do again in the future. And... Um, I realise that the way I feel about the future is that I don't have a great deal of confidence. I think life is going to change and I don't know what it looks like. Does that make any sense to you? How do you feel about the future? What are you worried about? slightly end of an era feeling right now, obviously, just um, with the end of Tony Blair's premiership, and uh, I don't know how you're feeling, obviously, um, you know, towards the end it went a bit pear-shaped, but I still remember how I felt when Tony Blair came into power, and it was the end of those kind of horrible dark days of the 80s, and all of those things, and uh, suddenly it was a new beginning and a new dawn, and, you know, that day uh, was it May the 2nd when, uh, when the new government were brought in. And uh, the sun shone, and the place was just beautiful, and it was early summer, and the place was full of hope. And we've had a, we've had a pretty good decade. And uh, I'm not sure what the future looks like. Is there anything else you're worried about? My parents are Yeah. Yeah, Naomi's saying that she worries about her parents. And um, the future is uncertain. Things are going to change. And people are going to die. And we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what it's going to be like. Anything else? Real. Oh, real. Yeah. It's just uncertain. Yeah. Nothing's sure. Yeah. Anything else? Anybody wor wor worry about war or terrorism or those kind of things? Well, you're going to know where you're trying to ski, you know, and then strike there. You just don't know. Yeah. If one, you could be on it one, and the next, and then someone could go strike. I mean, like that, um, with L, that 7th of July, like, I mean, it's, that was a big, that was a big, that was a nasty day. I mean, you know, that the train, all them people killed in it, that thing. I don't know if we worry about it too much. It's just, it's kind of there in our consciousness, isn't it? Kind of, maybe it can But happen. before, before Claire went to the war, mate, we had no time. Well, know, I'm not sure that's true, but thank you. Um, anything else people are worried about? Global warming, yeah, the whole environmental thing. Yeah, I don't know if you stopped to think about this, but I suddenly realised as we were driving down on the most beautiful day with the wind in our hair and the sun shining that I didn't have a great deal of confidence in the future. 
And I think that's changed. I think there was times in the past, perhaps our parents' generation, when there was a great deal of confidence in the, the future, there was a great deal of confidence in what humanity was going to achieve, in what science was going to achieve, and what civilization was going to become, and that uh, prosperity and democracy would be set, it would be uh, spread across the world, and the world was going to be okay. I just don't think that's true for us. The passage that we're going to be looking at today is um, a beautiful and almost breathless passage, full of hope. Um, Full of hope. And uh, for you and I, it is a picture of the future that I want us to take hold of and allow to kind of permeate into our, our thinking and our dreams and our hopes and our prayers. I want us to take this on as, um, uh, as something precious, something which uh, uh, shapes the landscape of our thinking. And um, it's Isaiah chapter 11. But so before we look at that, I just want to um, reflect very briefly on the beginning of uh, Matthew's gospel. Um, and we've made the point before that uh, 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 the book which is quoted more often than any other by the gospel writers is the book of Isaiah. And um, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, as he charts the first steps of Jesus' ministry, uh, he references the chapter that we looked at last week, Isaiah chapter 9. And he sets up this picture. Let me uh, read it to you. This is um, Matthew chapter 4 and uh, verse 15. It says, uh, Land of Zebulun and land of, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew is uh, obviously connecting those two statements. First, the statement by Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 9, and then uh, the word of Jesus that he opened his ministry with, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near is near. And uh, my feeling is that for those who heard Jesus, who heard him proclaiming that, um, that promise, that uh, for those of them who had ears to hear, it would have sparked in them something in their imagination, some ancient hope, perhaps a hope beyond hope, rooted in Isaiah's words. Jesus speaks that, of a kingdom which is coming, and not just any kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven. And um, it would have, of course, made reference to uh, those sort of great Davidic kingdoms, uh, David's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, the time when Israel was a, a great nation. But those, um, those hopes are filtered through Isaiah because um, the, the kingdom of God is somehow uh, escalated. No longer is it just a nation, but it is a kingdom which has a, a global and even a cosmic impact. And when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, those who had, who had ears to hear would have dreamed of these words of Isaiah. And I pray that tonight we'll learn to dream of the same things. So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 11. It's on page 696. And um, we talked uh, last week about... Um, the remnant is one of the great themes of Isaiah's firm. And the image that's often used for them is uh, the stump of a tree. The tree is cut down, but the roots remain intact. And the stump is there, and one day it, uh, it, it, it springs back into life. 
But there's another great theme in Isaiah, and that's the theme of the coming king. And uh, it's a picture which builds up throughout this book. And, um, and uh, in this passage, those two themes come together. Uh, they merge, and um, the promise of a king is likened to the shoot coming up from the stump. Verse 1 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Who's Jesse, anybody? David's dad. David's dad, that's right. Uh, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, in the line of great King David, King David's son, Solomon. From that stump, uh, a shoot will spring up. And um, uh, these two themes of uh, the remnant people and the coming king are going to merge in this image of um, uh, uh, life uh, being reborn from a fallen tree. This uh, passage is in three parts um, and we're going to look briefly at each of these and then reflect on the big picture, the idea of a hope which uh, sets us free and helps us to dream of what the world could be. The three parts are um, in verses 1 to 5, uh, an image of the coming king, of his nature and his character and what he's going to do. Uh, secondly, um, is a picture of his kingdom. It's a, it's a peaceable kingdom and it's a, a kingdom which transforms the whole coming king. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the wisdom of counsel and of power, the wisdom of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. It's um, really very interesting to me that um, what this king is going to do and what this king is going to be is actually what Israel was supposed to do all along. Do you remember Isaiah's criticism of Israel right back in chapter 1? He said, um, uh, God was saying, look, I'm fed up of all of your uh, religious rituals and all of your sacrifices and all of your festivals. And the reason I'm fed up with them all is, it says, um, there is blood on your hands. You have failed to uphold the cause of the needy or hear the voice of the powerless. You haven't heard the case of uh, the widow or the, the fatherless. And because of that, I am no longer listening. Even though you turn to me, even though you pray, you pray, I'm not listening anymore. And you see that this uh, coming king will do exactly what Israel failed to do. Look at verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And that judgment is a double-edged sword. Yes, he will bring justice for the sake of the oppressed. But also he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. This king comes to bring justice. He comes to be a a, a true king. A king as kings should be. And there's a a description of him. In verse 2 it says that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And uh, this is a really lovely people who are recipients of uh, that great blessing of Jesus, which is the Spirit of the Lord. This is perhaps what we should look like. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The modern church has spent a lot of time thinking about what it looks like to be a spirit-filled Christian. But I think we should hold on to passages like this. Remember the passage in Galatians that we looked, about, looked at a couple of terms ago, the fruit of the Spirit. I see real parallels here. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. It brings wisdom and understanding of counsel, the ability to understand and to give uh, wise advice in uh, different circumstances. And power, not a, a bullying power, but a, a self-confidence and an assurance, a willingness to face up to injustice and, uh, and wrongdoing. And spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, is a, a, a real motif of Isaiah. It's not necessarily one that we use all that often, but I think it's a really for its own good. And this can The leopard will lie down with the goats, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. It's actually a really quite astonishing uh, passage. It's been read by some people as a kind of metaphor for peace, that uh, the conflict that uh, dominates our world is removed. But I think I see in it uh, a picture of uh, uh, creation as it was in Eden. Creation before the fall. I think it's a picture of a, uh, a creation restored and renewed. And Isaiah has very clearly chosen the most fearsome animals that he can imagine. And in the midst of them, he's put a small child. And uh, uh, that's a reference to uh, the original calling of Adam and Eve. Do you remember that they were called to, uh, to have dominion over the animals, to care for them and to order them and to name them. And the most vulnerable human being, this small child, is actually able to walk amongst these fearsome creatures and to walk hand in hand with them. There's another of the lamb. And uh, it says that the wolf will live with the lamb. And that word, to, to live, is not simply to live alongside, but it's, a, it's got all sorts of undertones of hospitality. It's a sort of picture of the lamb invited. Um, I remember an interview with David. God created it. And the reason is that because there are aspects of nature which I find utterly gruesome and brutal. And he told the story of a, a parasite whose only uh, uh, purpose in life was to bore into the flesh of newborn babies. That was how it survived. And uh, he said, those things horrify me. Those things utterly horrify me. And how could a God create a world or create a creature like that? And I think that's a really important observation because... For us, as much as we might um, uh, love creation, and as much as we might see in it something of the character of God, as much as the, uh, we might say that the stars declare the handiwork of God, we need to recognise that this is a broken and ruined creation. And if it does say something of the character of God, it only says it uh, as, as a reflection in a broken mirror. And um, this is a promise uh, Romans where it talks about creation being in bondage waiting for the day when the sons of God are revealed and uh, we need to recognise that uh, creation is a broken thing and uh, it, it can be brutal and it can be uh, violent but I in that day the root of Jesse will stand was from Israel when they came up out of Egypt it, it's an image of a, a road through the desert where the people of God stream along back into uh, God's kingdom back into a uh, relationship with him but it's a bigger hope than that. It's a hope of um, uh, the nations reconciled, of all people throughout the world rallying around this banner. And that uh, once this king brings justice, 
And uh, once uh, uh, the wicked are dealt with and justice is done for the poor and the oppressed, then the nations are gathered around this king. And there's a lovely phrase in there uh, at the end of uh, verse 10. It says, and his place of rest will be glorious. It's a a picture of the the end of our labours, the end of this uh, toiling life that we live and a time when the earth is restored and that rest is true. So there we have it. It's a, it is a fantastic and almost breathless passage, isn't it? It's hope beyond hope. And I really want you to hold on to it and uh, uh, allow it to kind of seep into your thinking. But I think we need to ask this question. With all of its conflict, with all of the... Uh, uh, actually, which, um, uh, which uh, suggested the church was like a warehouse where people are kind of packed up, kept safe, until they're shipped off to heaven. And... Um, is that all churches? Is that all we are here to do? Just to keep one another safe, to uh, isolate one another from the evil of the world, and to wait until God steps in and uh, takes us off to heaven? I really don't think that that's the case. So, a couple of reflections on what we do with a passage like this. These are things that I've been thinking about over the kingdom. We are part of this kingdom. When Jesus uh, said, uh, "The kingdom of uh, heaven is near." He meant it's near. He speaks at other times of it being amongst you or within you. The kingdom of heaven is not something far away. It's not a distant hope. It's not off in eternity somewhere. The kingdom of heaven is at least in part here to a crunch point at the cross. And it was uh, spread throughout the world as a result of the day of Pentecost and the work of the early church. And it is amongst us now. of how this comes to being. Verse 9 says, They will of the Lord is spread throughout the nations. And you remember at the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus sent his disciples off, and uh, he commissioned them, and he said, uh, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all these things that I've taught you, and baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the call to those disciples, just as it is to us, is to be bringing in that king by proclaiming the knowledge of the Lord. By bring- and we hold on to that as something is precious and we fight to see it come in the world that we're part of. I wanted to um, finish off just with a, a thought about mythology. And um, I realised that... Uh, uh, We've kind of done away with mythology, rather. There have been plenty of times in human history when they've had very strong, wasn't there, kind of Arthurian legends. And um, mythology isn't, as we've been led to believe, uh, something which is just made up. There's a better definition of mythology here. Uh, Mythology is stories of deep. Genesis 1 is our mythology, and it shapes the way... Like I said at the beginning, I'd love these chapters to kind of... Heavenly Father, as those who perhaps struggle to have hope for the future, we pray that you would give us your hope. For those who struggle to see what the future might look like, we pray that you would set in our hearts your vision for the future. For those of us who uh, might despair that the world could ever be changed, we pray